right, thank you, Tez. So to start, let me share with you this stat that I came across at some point in the past. So the Pew Research Center, which is this uh, research group in the States, did a study over 10 years ago which found that nearly half of everyone who went to prison in the U.S. actually went back to prison within five years after they released. In fact, another study uh, done by the U.S. Department of Justice in 1994 found that over a nine-year span, nearly 80% of the people who were released from prison ended up going back to prison. Right? And that was pretty shocking for me. And the article said that part of the reason why that was the case is because prison life actually conditioned inmates to behave in a way that doesn't make sense in normal life, right? These prison habits, it ranges from things from like eating really fast because in prison, if you leave some food behind, someone will take it from you, to being like hypervigilant, right? Being constantly suspicious and always evaluating people as threats because in prison, they're constantly around people who could harm them. And things like being excessively aggressive for minor offenses. Because in prison, it would actually be dangerous for them if people thought that they weren't going to stand up for themselves. So although physically they were out of prison, mentally, they're still in jail. So what would repeatedly happen is because these inmates are so no longer used to living amongst those who are free... They continued acting in the free world like they used to be in prison. And they end up associating themselves again with people who lived by prison rules and eventually breaking the law again and ending up right back in prison. Which seems you know, counterintuitive and counterproductive because one would assume that the purpose of these correctional facilities is to, well, correct criminal behavior so they can actually live amongst the general population. Now, I bring this up because this is somewhat analogous to what happens to us Christians, right? The Bible describes us as well as being freed from our imprisonment from sin, such that now we're living in this new reality that has been re liberated from the power of sin. But the reality is that we are living now is that we still struggle mightily with sin. Every day. And I don't know about you, and I stumble so much in this battle against my sinful self, falling over and over again into the same kinds of sin, such that it can really feel like sin is getting the better of me. Creating this gap between my theology, what tells me I'm free, and my behavior that demonstrates to me often that I am far from free, right? And that can get really frustrating. I don't know about you guys. So today's text, though, helpfully, teaches us how we can begin to close this gap between our theology and our spirituality. We're going to be continuing on our series and the book of Ephesians. And if you recall, Paul has already at length described to us how we are free and why we were free in the first place in the first three chapters. So now, we're in the middle of his instructions about how we must live in light 
of the fact that we've been freed, okay? So let's read it and see what he's talking about from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 14. This is the Word of God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper amongst the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talks, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is even shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, that was a pretty heavy one, isn't it? Right? And if you're just joining us for the past couple of sermons, I understand that Paul might come off as a little legalistic here. But we've got to remember that he's saying all this in light of what Paul has already written in chapters 1 to 3. That in his mercy, God has freely loved us and saved us long before we were ever worthy of it. So this is not at all instructions about how God can smile upon us and how God will finally accept us. Rather, this is instruction about how we can respond now that he's smiling. So we just read Paul providing some detailed instructions about some of the most sensitive and uncomfortable areas of our lives, about our private lives, leaving no stone unturned in order to really press that there is indeed a right way for us to respond to this gracious gift that we have received. Because there is definitely a way that would compromise our enjoyment of the gift that we've received. A way that would actually be insane in light of the, this new reality that we're supposedly living in now. In this text we studied last week, Paul talked about this change in terms of taking off the self and putting on the new, right? If you remember that. And in today's text, we read him describing it in, with the metaphors of uh, light and dark, through which he teaches us there are four practical steps that though are definitely easier said than done, that if we commit ourselves to following, we will enjoy the freedom from sin that God intends for us to have, okay? So our four points, four biblical steps to live your best life now. That's right. I went there. You heard it. I'm redeeming the words of a famous preacher. Okay? So four steps. One, identify your idolatry. Two, 
trade it for thankfulness. Three, distance yourselves from darkness. And four, live in the light. Okay, so we're going to discuss these four things. Let's get straight into it. Step one, identify your idolatry. Let's jump back into Paul's train of thought here. So since the beginning of chapter 4, Paul's been on this mission to get us prioritizing and intentionally working on church unity. And he ended last chapter with a bunch of practical instructions regarding how these adornments, right, which Tazar talked about last week. And the essence of which is summarized in uh, verses 1 of two and 2 in chapters 5, that we are called to be imitators of God and walking in love. That in verse 3, Paul essentially lists out three things that would be completely counterproductive to this effort. Basically saying, you know what you're definitely not doing if you're walking in love and trying to imitate God? Sexual immorality, referring to, uh, to any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. I feel like in this day and age, this must be emphasized. There is also impurity, which is often paired with sexual immorality and is often really the root cause of it, referring to these unrestrained fantasies that we entertain and actualize and sexually immoral acts. And the last thing is covetousness or greed, this insatiable selfishness driving us to always gratify ourselves. That's definitely applicable to our sexual ethic, but it's a much more category that applies to other areas in our lives, right? Especially things like riches and power. But do you notice how these things progressively get more and more internal, right? Like more to the heart. Sexual immorality is putting into action the impurity that's in your mind that's driven by the greed in your heart. However, greed isn't even the more fundamental category here. Because Paul actually repeats uh, these three things in verse 5, adding an even broader category behind what Paul lists here that encompasses the whole thing. And it says there, it is idolatry. Now, if you've been in CCC for a while, we talk a lot about idolatry because the Bible talks about it a lot. But if you're new or somehow you haven't heard by now, just to refresh your memory, in the Bible, idolatry is not talking about bowing down to worship some statue or another god. But what idolatry in essence is, is making whatever created thing more important to us than God. It's taking something that's often not necessarily evil and using it to find that only God can give us. Using something created and finite to find this lasting significant security and value which makes us feel like life is really worth living. And sex, money, and power are great candidates for that job, isn't it? These are things that are generally gratifying enough that it can seriously flatter to deceive. We want to be loved and accepted unconditionally. So we think that being sexually desirable is a solution. We want happiness and peace, so we think surrounding ourselves with this creaturely 
comforts and luxury that money can buy us will do that. We want to feel valuable and respected, so we think getting ourselves into these high positions where we're in charge and we're in power and in control can give us that. Do you see these friends and the culture that we're living? Probably do. Because in fact, this has always been the problem from every culture in human history. From Aphrodite, Mammon, and Zeus, to Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche, humans have always been attracted to figures who justify our desire to lower the sexual ethics, normalize materialism, and encourage the pursuit of power. And Paul is encouraging us to not be dragged in to this by taking extra care to be vigilant and identify in our hearts and address the idols that we find, to deal with whatever it is that we have turned to instead of God to fulfill our deepest desires. And do you know what is the most telling sign about what could be an idol for us? Verse 4 there gives us a hint by how we use our words. Notice how Paul suddenly switches from talking about the sins of the heart to the sins of speech before later in verse 5 coming back to the sins of the heart again. Because he sees these two things actually as inseparable. Filthiness, foolish talk, rude joking, these all refer to this obscene and degrading sort of sexualized speech. Ultimately, referring to a perverted mind that is expressing itself in unwholesome talk. So Paul here is not just simply a prude who can't handle some dirty jokes. But I think it's mainly because Paul understands how the Lord Jesus himself says that whatever comes out of your mouth is what corrupts, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hence, we're invited to really ponder, friends, what does my speech tell me I value most? And trust me, friends, this is a convicting instruction for me personally. I can certainly be unwise and sharp with my words. I trash talk recreationally, quite willing to have a laugh at someone else's expense. I'm now even wondering if some of you fell victim to that as recently as the last one day or at some point in your friendship with me, and I'm really sorry that I've hurt some feelings. But when I apply these questions to me, right, I find that it shows that my speech actually shows that I idolize my own comfort so much that I'm willing to disregard other people and hurt their feelings for my expense. I habitually mock and belittle other people because subconsciously, actually, I'm the one who's feeling insecure and unhappy. I'm the one who's actually scared and anxious. And in some twisted way, I feel comfort when I drag someone else down with me. So that I know that I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. Hence, the uncomfortable truth is, my words reveal that I put other people down for my own comfort. So I feel better about myself. That's the darkness that I have recently been uh, made aware of personally. And what about you? What does what you say say about you? 
what flows out of the abundance of your heart. This applies to the words that you actually vocalize in public and those that we keep to ourselves as we Indonesians have been trained very well to do. And I wouldn't be surprised, friends, if you do find something uncomfortable. There is, that there is some idol out there that you didn't realize you were worshiping. Because nobody is immune to this. This guy, Calvin, said that the heart is a factory of idols. Having this nasty habit of craving, uh, not craving, craving the blessings only God's love and approval can give us, but never actually willing to look for them from God. That's the darkened condition we all still struggle with. The darkness that who, uh, those without Christ are still helplessly trapped in. But for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we have actually and in reality been freed from this darkness. And it has no longer have any power over us so that we can actually leave the darkness and how is the next step? Step two, trade our idolatry with thankfulness. Look with me again to uh, verse five. What, we, what should be coming out of our hearts instead of words that make light of sin or normalizes it somehow. And that is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is so important to Paul that he repeats it again there in verse 20, saying that we should be doing this to God for everything and always. Because, friends, Paul does not see as uh, gratefulness as just this reaction that we have when something goes our way. But it is something that we Christians have to go out of our way to do in order to make a disciplined habit of. And the benefit of this practice for humans, being the only creature in creation that can self-consciously be grateful to God is that this practice is actually the antidote to the idolatrous tendencies of our hearts. You see, what the habit of gratefulness essentially trains us to do is constantly name everything as a gift given to us by our Heavenly Father who, in His infinite wisdom, is working behind all things for our good who will never withhold anything that's good and beneficial from his beloved children. Hence, it fosters uh, this exceptionally important mindset that everything good in my life flows from the abundance of the generosity of God, being fully aware that none of it actually comes from me or ultimately belongs to me, nor do I necessarily deserve it. Therefore, I can't just misuse the gifts that God has given me in my life by doing whatever I want with it. Do you see what I mean? So let's run with this example of sexual temptation and lust that Paul had been using. Thanksgiving is the antidote to lust and impurity because it first names our bodies and sexual pleasure as a gift. So when we do with this gift what it was designed for, it can be such a wonderful thing. Sex can be the deepest expression of God's covenant love to another human. Our bodies is described as this 
temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. The very analogy between the unity of God's people. However, when we abuse this gift, and, to, and when we make it the object of the center of our lives simply as something to be used for our own satisfaction, we are actually refusing to acknowledge that the life and worth of this gift is found precisely because it was given to us by God. So we actually strip it of the true potential beauty and goodness that has made us drawn to it in the first place. You get it, right? But gratefulness, friends, actually reverses this condition because it makes us recognize God as the center where He should be. In other words, gratefulness recalibrates our moral compasses and makes us realize that the parameters that God has given us about how to enjoy these gifts appropriately are not restrictive or oppressive, but, the end, but they're actually intended to liberate these gifts to generate the goodness that it was made for. So let's apply it again to sex because it's a struggle that exists in every human community in the history of the world, right? How the Bible teaches us that the first step unto healing from our lust and impurity, right, which looks like over time being increasingly disinterested in gratifying our sexual impulses and actually growing in self-control, the first step is in principle really appreciating how profoundly valuable our bodies are and how beautiful sex really is. Until we can see how much of a shame it is when we use our body carelessly and treat sex as simply something cheap as a satisfaction of physical pleasure. Then after we have the realization, it's like going on a diet, right? whereby we can reliably find this motivation to resist immediate pleasure because that there is a sure, there's an assurance of obtaining a better and long-lasting reward in the future, you see. So I can't stress enough how important this is for the Christian life because if we're not making that choice to constantly practice grateful thanksgiving, and we just carry on, although we claim to believe in Christ, and we just continue to fulfill our sinful desires, we will slowly but surely be inviting self-destruction into our lives, which is really what Paul highlights as the consequence of failing to leave their darkness in verses 5 and 6. Look, if you look at it again, if you read these verses and come away at first with the impression that God is somehow shaking His fist threateningly at us, right? Like, you better get your act together, be grateful, or else I'm going to, like, cross you out of my will. I get it, right? However, if we understand these words in light of the larger context of Paul's theology of what he said, although this is indeed a warning about something frightening, it's not so much about being sent to hell or losing God's love. So in the opening uh, paragraph in his letter to the Romans, Paul actually really fills out what he means by God's wrath. And you can see him uh, that Paul uses here in Ephesians 5. 
And in Romans 1, how Paul describes the human sinful condition is this state of really being out of touch with ultimate reality. Suffering from this mental corrosion that leads us to, instead of giving glory to God and giving thanks to Him, relentlessly attempt this, this insane task of replacing God with some created thing. So how does God reveal His wrath to us in this world that we have corrupted with our sin? Not by immediately striking us down with fury and vengeance, but in fact, God revealed His anger by letting us go on in the sins that we have chosen. It clearly says there in Romans 1, three times, that God gives us over to the darkened desires of our hearts. In other words, God actually respects our choice to reject Him, and He allows us to destroy ourselves in the process. So I'm not saying, friends, that you know, the idea that God will send unrepentant sinners to hell or etern eternal judgment is wrong. But what I am saying, that this narrative is not right enough. I think that's what this language of inheritance in verse 5 is talking about. Because not having an inheritance is really about missing out on what we were made for. The idea is that we humans have been given this gift of being God's image, capable of ruling creation creatively, partnering with God. But when we operate independently from God, we ended up treating other people as less than the images of God that they were made in, and we settle for blessings that are a lot less than what God wants to give us leading to this kind of sub-human existence that is out of sync with what God has revealed to us. Now, as it stands, though, this world is filled with people who are dead set and hell-bent on this sub-human reality, committed to the bitter end to this insanity that our idolatry drives us to. And the only reason why any of us have snapped out of it is because the Holy Spirit has first woken us up. But the reality is, that's not everybody. And we're now living in a world and among people who are neither trying to give thanks to God nor even realize that there are idols that they're worshiping. In fact, most of the time, they're the ones who think we're crazy. Being themselves deceived, they are pressuring us in various ways to believe in the same lies that they are trapped in. That's what verse 6 there is about. So the final step to our best life now, the final two steps rather, is learning how to interact truthfully with them, right? The last two steps. I'll actually be discussing them together because there are two sides of the same coin. So steps three and four. Distancing ourselves from darkness and living in the light. So, you know, because of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, which always stands in opposition to the culture, Christians have, and until He returns, will always continue to disagree with any human culture at a pretty fundamental level. 
This has been demonstrably the case throughout history. And unfortunately, this disagreement hasn't been handled by the church that well, right? And historically, we have struggled to balance the slippery slope of these two extremes. Either we become separatists and we just remove ourselves from the secular world, holding our noses up at the poor world who are cursed and they don't know any better, or we somehow try to adapt Christianity to what the culture believes such that it's more palatable for them. Now, there are many problems with both approaches, which I can't get into now in the interest of time, but not least among these problems is the fact that that's not actually how the Bible tells us to respond to the hostility and resistance that will inevitably come when we try to follow Jesus faithfully. Rather, the Bible is actually showing us a third way that makes it possible for us to both have this mutually beneficial relationship with the world while resisting corruption. And this, in essence, involves two parallel steps, right? And the first step is so important because it's actually repeated twice using slightly different words in verse 7 and 11 there. It says, do not be partners with them and take no part in their works. Being partners is literally co-sharers, meaning uh, referring to people who have the, a common vested interest in something. And take no part, literally in Greek, means do not be co-participants in the work of darkness. These are basically symmetrical ideas that tells us there indeed needs to be some kind of limit and safe distance that we need to have with people who do not share our faith in Christ. We're not supposed to just be affirming or supportive of whatever decisions people make and the influences that they are taking in. Never to be in any way enabling them to continue sinning, let alone participating in these sinful behaviors ourselves or normalizing them in our own minds. And this can be really hard, friends. I really understand. Because usually the people from whom the pressure to compromise what Jesus teaches us usually are the people who are really close to us, who are really dear to our hearts. Some are close family and friends might be the ones who are still deeply steeped in sin. And it can often be the case that they not only think that we're wrong on an academic level, but they're actually demanding confirmation, not confirmation, affirmation from us, lest we lose the relationship. And these situations are scary, painful, and often very complicated. Yet at the same time, it's not something that we can entirely avoid without compromising Jesus. Because verse 8 there, if you look, summarizes what is the biggest differences between people who are following Jesus and those who are not. That they are darkness and we are light and we are about walking as children of light. Please notice the very subtle but important detail that Paul doesn't say that they are in darkness and we are in light, but they themselves are darkness. 
As in, the reason they reject us is not because these external influences that's around them. It's not like they're this blank slate and the world is just corrupting them. No. But it's rather because that their hearts are fallen to darkness and that they have identified themselves and love the darkness instead of the light. Meaning, as hard as a pill of this to swallow, we just got to accept that non-Christians, they're not going to fully get us. They're not going to understand what we value and how we think. They're not going to appreciate our reasoning. Their purpose of life and existence is not the same with us. Therefore, sadly, there's a limit, in some sense, to the relationship that we can have with them. Like, I can't trust that their advice will not actually lead me to more sin. Like, I can't just expect that they will speak truth in my life. I mean, we don't see eye to eye even on what the truth really is. And I know this might be a controversial point, and this might be a really hard point to accept, but tell me if you disagree, if this is the case. But I think I would find it very difficult to find someone who doesn't share my faith in Christ to be my main source of support and affirmation. Because though our unbelieving friends and family might mean well, they simply lack the spiritual infrastructure to have that kind of connection with us. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm definitely not saying that we're only supposed to have close, meaningful relationship with Christians, right? On the contrary. Nor am I saying that the relationships that we have with non-Christians are any less meaningful. But what I am saying is that we do have to be kind of careful. Because as Christians who have embraced the reality of the light, our relationship with those who are still in sin does change, which is a second step, taking this change seriously by living in the light. And how this change is described is described in pretty striking terms there in verse 11 and 13, that because the light is opposite to the darkness, it has the ability to shine on the darkness in order to expose it. Now, the, world, the word expose here has some really negative connotations in our culture, right? And I'm not saying that we should be out there shaming somebody into repentance or arguing them into the kingdom of God, right? Church has done that before, and it hasn't really worked out. But what it does mean is that our role in the life of our unbelieving friends is not just to hang out with them and have fun, but to more importantly, to help them see sin for what it really is. An empty, self-destructive, subhuman way of living. And the best way to do that for us who are still works in progress, admittedly, is actually by means of contrast, by doing things that are incompatible with darkness. This is why squeezed in there between the two prohibitions regarding our relationship with non-believers in verse 8 to 10, Paul gives us this positive instruction to pursue the fruits of the light, which is all, all that is good and righteous and true, and discern what is pleasing to the Lord, right? Two things that the darkness cannot understand or be part of. 
So what Paul is saying there is that when we make our life about pleasing God, when that becomes the sun on which we orbit, right, through following Jesus, who the Bible often himself calls the light, in his good, righteous, and true ways, there is great power that God can use as a way to call sinful people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And for those who had been living in darkness, which is all of us who have come to believe, we would know that this is indeed an uncomfortable process, right? At least initially. Because we have to go through seasons, most likely multiple seasons, when we're realizing that we're more broken, selfish, and compromised than we have ever thought or ever imagined that we could be. But verse 13 and 14 actually gives us hope. Because it says that one, when one who is in dark is exposed by light, it becomes visible. And anything, verse 14 says, that has become visible is light. Now, don't get caught up in the physics of this. But what he's saying is that meaning the being exposed to light is actually a good thing. Because when we're exposed to light, there is this kind of transformative property that makes someone who was once in darkness able to approach the light. Amazing, isn't it? Because that means that even our limited, flawed attempts to be righteous, good, and true, like Jesus, can be used by God for such a noble and powerful task. And that, friends, is certainly a gift we can be grateful for. That's why Paul concludes his argument by telling these Christians there in verse 14, quoting Isaiah 61, to arise, wake up, because God has now given us so much. Not only has He given us life to get up from the dead, but now we can actually live like we're alive. And when we do that, it says that the light of Christ shines upon us. We will both experience God's light and God's light will reflect from us and call people out of darkness and into light. Sweet, isn't it? Friends, in summary, our passage here is really a call to seize the day. That we don't have, that we shouldn't waste our time and energy on temporary and trivial things like pursuing sex, money, and power like everyone else. But rather, let us occupy our minds and efforts to grateful thanksgiving, showing to God that we understand that everything we currently have is a gift, that there are way more gifts to unwrap. And to run with this analogy, we unwrap these gifts by committing to what is good and right and true as Jesus showed us. And the great thing is, when we do this, not only are we blessed, but other people have a chance to get a gift too. Right? How great is that? So seize the day, friends. Go and live your best life now. And that starts with understanding that right now, 
God has given us the best, has given us this best. Remembering, reminding ourselves that this wife or husband that I have, he or she might not be perfect, but he's a gift from heaven. And I am called to take care of that. This job right now is a blessing from God because even though it can be so hard, God has called me here and made me capable of being a blessing. That this money I have is from God and is enough. And if I ever need more, God will never run out of cash and He'll always take care of me. And even this season of trouble that I might be going through, that man, though it might be so hard and so frustrating, this too is a gift from God and is shaping my character, turning me into a new creation. Just as some examples of words a thankful person can say to themselves. So just to get really practical, because apparently my sermons aren't that practical, can we try doing this one thing this week, friends? Right? If there's one application, let's be more intentionally thankful and grateful in our lives. Then you tell me if it didn't work in making the things of this earth seem strangely dim. But if you're not a Christian, but by God's grace, you are realizing that you are actually trapped in darkness. You want out, but you can't see how. Jesus is offering you his light right now. So, this is you. Would you first turn to him and receive him as your light and give us the opportunity to shine his light upon you? The Bible promises, friends, that if you are exposed to light, you will be light too. So I beg you, do not go back to hide in the darkness. Come to the light. Will you? Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. You have given us light to guide us. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. But Lord, we are often so used to the darkness. We have formed habits in the deeds of darkness. Lord, expose them to us. Make them seem weird and abnormal to us and give us the wisdom and motivation to see how we can truly live in the light. Lord, send us your Holy Spirit to give us the awareness so that we think of giving thanks to you. Allow us, Lord, to taste the sweetness of the mercies that you indeed have renewed for us every morning that we may live a life of constant gratefulness to you, for it is only in that state, the state that we will be when we finally see you face to face, will we truly experience life as you have intended for us to experience. In Jesus' holy and mighty name we pray. Amen.